Sunday school superintendent who wanted a missionary hymn for Easter Sunday. And that scripture verse would be Matthew 28, 18, the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Father, God, we just want to thank you so much for the privilege that we have to give thanks, give back to you for all the blessings you've given us. There's so much that we've been given, Lord, and we pray especially as we sing the song of sending the light, Lord, help us to be the light shining in the world where the darkness shines so, where the darkness is so overwhelming, let our light shine brighter. Thank you, Lord, for these, your folks.
Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father, now we have so much to be thankful for and so many blessings in this life. We thank you for this country and for the ability that we have to freely come and worship you and give glory to your name and to enjoy one another. Pray also too, Father God, for the leaders of this country, to give them foresight and insight and also give them wisdom from above. Not from their own guts and not from their own hearts and not from the wickedness of this world, but to truly walk in the ways and to bring about the Judeo-Christian heritage that we have and to contain and continue maintain that and also give us victory. We pray as Christians as we make stands and as we have an election to come up that we can make our stand even more stronger as we go out. I pray also to Father God um, <clears throat> for um, the uh, church here, Lord, as we make the transition over to the Presbyterian Church. Pray that everything will go smoothly, Lord, and that we can uh, truly show to our own denomination that we're leaving that there's a purpose and a reason why we have to do this because of the convictions that we have. I pray also, too, Father God, for issues that we know of in our lives or people that we're concerned. I think of Brother Bill, who has a niece, Brandy, who's got cystic fibrosis and now is in the hospital because she has pneumonia. We just pray for her healing, Lord. I pray also, too, Father, for Nicholas Greer, who has been fighting a fever and, and also a an infection in his body, and we know that his body is pretty delicate, Lord, and we just ask you, Lord, to bring healing to him. We pray also, too, for um, um, uh, Marsha, who just come out of COVID, and also for um, Daniel Gum, Lord, who's got cancer through his body. We pray for his healing. We pray also for little Samantha Mama, who has um, brain tumors in her brain, and found some things working. We just pray for complete healing for both of them. I pray also, too, for John, Lord, you know, the struggles that he's having right now with his health. I pray also, too, for Betty's brother-in-law, the one who's having a hip surgery this morning. And for the other one, Lord, who's uh, struggling with cancer and is expected to die, Lord, we just pray that you lay your hand upon him and be with the family. I pray also, too, for um, Tommy Jr., my uh, my brother, my cousin's son, Lord, as he uh, had that large surgery around his liver and that, uh, Lord, for healing for that now, no uh, infection. We pray also for Sarah, who had a surgery, and for our brother Howard, who was here, Lord, and for his healing, too. We pray for the Guile family, uh, the loss of Dorothy, Lord. I just pray that you'll be with them as we lift her up, Lord, to you at the funeral service and rejoice of her home going to be with you at 96. I pray also for our shut-ins, Lord. I think of Bill Bannister, who's uh, a Lord crippled down, has to stay in a nursing home. I just pray that you'll be with him and Connie as they walk through this ordeal. I pray also, too, for Evelyn, Lord, who had to be uh, put in a nursing home, too, because her mind is leaving her. I just pray for her, Lord, and give her peace of mind. I pray also, too, for um, Lucille as she um, still struggles with her health and is shut in and for Karen and for Kay and Joyce. Be with them all, Lord, as they uh, handle now being um, more inactive in their lives and having to do stuff now. Pray also for those that have addictions, Lord. We think of Ryan, we think of Jordan, we think of David, we think of Eric, Ricky, and Mitch. All them who are battling the evils of addiction, Lord, I just pray for them to gain victory over it in you, Christ, so they look to you for their strength. And Father, we lift up others that we know, maybe we didn't get to write down their names on a 
sheet of paper, but Lord, you know who they are. Lord, hear our prayers as we lift them up by name. Heavenly Father, I lift up marriages that are struggling right now, Lord, that you bring healing to those marriages. Pray for kids who are in rebellion right now and who are going through difficulties in their life. We give you thanks too, Lord, for the two children that the car was stolen and they were kidnapped for a while and that they were let out and everything is fine with them. Lord, we just give you praise for that. For the other things that have been going on in our city, Lord, we just pray we can be faithful lights out in this world, Jesus. And now, open up to us, Lord, your word. Help us to want to hear what you have to say. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, I pray this. Amen. <clears throat> Alberta, Canada, two fellas were driving down the road. It was below freezing, as it can get in Canada. And as they slid off the road, they wound up in a ditch. And they were concerned because nobody was going by. It was a deserted road. They didn't see anything, and so uh, they were freezing, and the engine had cut off, and they didn't know what to do. So what they did is they took the car, and they started to burn it. They took that little Honda, they hit the gas lead, and it started to burn. It began to warm them up, and they stayed there most of the night, and then the next morning, as it started to dwindle down just before sundown, they took their bags, and they threw them in the car to make it burn again for a little bit longer. And then finally, the sun came up. There down in the valley was a house. Here they had a house right there where they could go to and find a home, people home and get the call made to the sheriff to come and take care of them in the ambulance. Little did they know that the people know when the officers asked, then they had cell phones on them too. Now, how could that happen? Sometimes when people get nervous and in situations, they panic and they forget the resources that they have. Here they had cell phones that they could easily get contact with. And one of the things today we're going to talk about is the most important thing is prayer. We have this great resource of communicating with God and getting in touch with him that is so important. And it's such a wonderful thing that God has given us as a gift to be able to communicate and, re and to tap into his power. It's interesting that we find that the Barn Association uh, wound up in a survey and they found out 65% of Americans pray. And they found that 28% of those people that pray do not believe in God, but when they're in trouble, they pray. And it's interesting, they also did the survey of the people that said they pray that were Christians and one of the things that was interesting, 85% of them believed that their prayers were not going to be answered. It's interesting, isn't it? How we can pray, do the activity, but sometimes we not may believe what is really going on. Some of the people felt that they weren't worthy enough for God to answer for them. Others said that their problem was not that important to God, and they didn't think that he would answer it. Others said that they were, didn't think they were valuable enough to God that he would answer to them. All these issues have to do with the relationship with God. And prayer is a marvelous that gift that God has given to us to become more in touch with him, to stand with him. It's a high and holy privilege for us to be able to talk to God. It's a gift of the grace. 
And here he wants us to talk to him and to be able to be intimately involved in every relationship, even with God. We need to spend time talking and dialoguing with him and taking his word and learning from him more. And not in lighthearted speech only, but also in deep personal contact with him about our own personal lives. You see, sometimes we don't want to talk to God because we know. Sometimes he answers our prayer with a yes. Sometimes he'll say no, which is hard for us to take sometimes. And it tries our faith. And sometimes he'll say wait. And that's even harder for us to wait on the Lord for years. Praying for somebody for their heart to change. In years, we don't see any changes in them. That's hard to have faith in your prayers. But God says to us, and James says to us, this is the staple for which we grow in Christ. Getting on our knees and truly dealing with our lives with God the way he opens them up. It's our staple. It's something that we need. And there are people who fear that they couldn't pray like some super saints. You don't have to. It's just conversation with God. And one of the beautiful things about it is William Cowper, who wrote uh, hymns in the ear of uh, uh, Isaac Newton, or not Isaac Newton, but Newton, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. He said this. He said, Satan trembles when the weakest saint gets on his knees. The weakest saint, not the power hungry, the strong spiritual person, but the weak. And this is our spiritual weapon. God has given us prayer. And it's so important for us to dive in deep with God. James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James, struggled and understood what it was like to go through difficulties in life. He understood what was going on. If we look at his book and we understand, what does he say? He says it's troubles. He says, is anyone of you suffering, having trouble? You should then pray. If anybody is cheerful, he is to sing praises. James knew what it was like. If we look at James, when we just read, we're almost done with the book of James in our series. And what did he say? He said, we have trials. Christians are not exempt, and it's so immature, and some people don't get it, but they listen to some of the people on the radio and the TV preachers, and they think they're not going to have troubles if they become the Christian, and that's not true. Sometimes you're going to have more trials. In fact, this past week, one of the commentators said to a group of people, um, <clears throat> he said that Christians are going to come under great persecution in the next 10 years. Because of what's going on with the, with, with the, the uh, culture that we're in. And how the cancel culture is trying to put Christianity out of business. And how they're trying to get rid of all the Judeo-Christian morals. And he's saying that what Christians stand more and more. And we're seeing it. We've had our sign in the front of our house about the abortion issue stole out of our front yard. Some people have had neighborhoods who've been cleaned out by them. Because people don't want to see our message out there. And so what happens is we're going to see more and more of that. And James here says to us in, in, in his whole book, what he deals with, he says, you're going to have trials. Count it all joy that you can trust God through the trial that you're going through. 
He talked about discrimination of property because of property. And in that first chapter, we see even Christians abusing other Christians about it that James deals with. He talks about exploitation by landowners and, and litigation that they bring the poor to. He talks about a lack of clothing and food that other believers don't have and other Christians are lifting a finger to them. He talks about fights and quarrels in chapter 4 and slander of other Christians and physical and personal and material suffering in chapter 5 again. You see, this is nothing new. Jesus said it to us, did he not? He said, in the world you will have tribulations. We're going to have it because we are counter the culture. We are standing against it. And he says, in this world we will have tribulations. Be of good cheer. Our countenance should not change because I've overcome the world, he said. And so we hang on to that. And we hope and we live for all strongly. We see it. Many people get into trouble. Jonah got himself into trouble by disobeying God, not obeying the will of God. We've seen it, trouble in other areas of the Bible, all through it. We see Manasseh, even wicked Manasseh, when he was chained up and he was bound in Babylon, he got on his knees and prayed to God. Job, who had everything taken from him, all the wealth, all that he had was taken from him, and he still prayed to God and trusted God in his affliction. David who was chased several times by different characters in the Bible, even his own child who tried to kill him. And he still trusted and prayed to God. You see, the word of God speaks to us, and our highest mark is Jesus. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, on his knees, coming to the Father with his heart concerned, this is where we need to be, on our knees. In fact, they say that John was the named Camel Knees, and the reason why is because he would go into the temple and get on his knees and pray. They became calloused, said Eusebius, the historian, when he went into the temple to pray. And that's where he knew that there was power and that his effectiveness as a Christian came from on his knees in prayer. And so James here says that if you're suffering, pray. Pray for God to give you wisdom. Pray for God to give you power. Pray for God to give you the strength you need to endure the troubles that you will encounter. It's like the two men that climbed up the mountain. And one said, why do you climb up the mountain? He says, well, I, I love just climbing mountains. The other guy said, he said, and why do you? He says, I love going up on the mountain and looking down into the valley where all my problems are. And he says, I love to get that perspective. And to see how small my problems are. And folks, you and I, when we pray, we should climb the mountain with God. We should see him in his glory. And see the perspective of our problems and the issues that we face are really nothing. When we study God, how big is your God? How big do you see them in him in your head? It's a theological thing. It's a problem that we have that our God can't fix it. Our God, if we study the attributes of God, he's sovereign. That means he's in control and he can do whatever he wishes. And he knows exactly what needs to get done. And he's omniscient to know how it fits into our lives and how it plays into our lives so that we can truly understand him. And that he's omnipotent. He's powerful. That can change those situations. And there are times that he will change them. And there are other times he'll make them worse and allow them to work. So that we can be tested and tried. So that we can be mature in Christ as he says in chapter 1. And that's where we come to. 
James then stops. And he says, and if you're happy, if you're cheerful, sing praises. One of the greatest things we can do is to sing praises to God for just who he is, not what even he's done for us, but just for how great he is and how we don't have to worry about a thing because as we trust him for who he really is, we don't have to fear. But we know that the Bible says he does all things for the good of those who trust him and are called by his name. Even the worst of situations that can happen to us, there's still reason to praise. And God calls us and as we, we understand the Westminster Confession that says we're here to glorify God. And when we praise him, that's the expression of that glory that we see in him and how comforting it is to us as we feel that. And James here understands that. And when he says, you're happy, he says, sing it out loud. You may say, well, I don't got a great voice. God understands what you're doing and he's blessed by your singing of praises to him. Look what it says, the psalmist who've been through many hard times. He says, but let all that take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may your shelter them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. This is what we're made for, folks. And as we let go of the things of this life and the troubles and the pressures, we feel this relief and peace. Jesus said to us, this peace I give to you. It's a peace that we have going through crisis that relieves us of the pressure. This is what Jesus promised us to do. Paul and Silas understood this. Here they are in this dark, dingy prison. And here they are with rats, all kinds of stuff. Their backs are bleeding from the whipping they just got. And what are they doing? It's at midnight. They're having a praise worship service. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Paul says it so well. He says, let your heart praise God with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Because that lifts you and gives you the strength that you need to carry through. That's the high privilege it gives us. Why should we pray to bring us into intimate communion with God so that he can deal with our hearts and show us exactly what we need to do to change? That we have the spiritual weaponry, the power that we need to deal with the crises that are in our lives. And that doesn't come easy. And that we have Satan working against us. But as we already heard and we already saw that Satan cringes and trembles when you get on your knees, no matter how weak your faith is, and you give it over to God, he's scared to death. You see, and we're to pray then, not only when we're in trouble, but when things are going good. We should rejoice. When we have a big decision to make in our lives, what do we do? We need to get on our knees. Jesus spent all night praying before he chose his disciples. And that we're, Paul says we're to continually to pray. Keep on praying. One of the things I read about Ruth Graham, she said, you know, the challenges she had as parenting. Because when Billy Graham was gone a lot of times. And she said, you pray when you feel like it. When you're rejoicing in your heart, pray. It's great. But then she said, and pray when you don't feel like it. 
for it is dangerous to remain in such a condition. And when you're feeling not good and God hasn't answered your prayer and you are frustrated or disappointed, pray anyway. And pray with sincerity in your heart, telling God what's on your mind, what you're feeling in your soul, and pour it out to him. Because as you pour it out to him, his relief comes, and you begin to see maybe what he's trying to do in your life to change you. And to do it with thanksgiving, Paul says. We do it because we know God is powerful enough that he can do it, he can fix it, he can take care of it, and we trust him. And that's why we can do it with thanksgiving. Make all your requests be known, Paul says, with thanksgiving and then with humility. Come in before him and know that he doesn't have to answer your prayer. He doesn't have to do anything for you, but he will. Just like the tax collector who came mercifully to the Lord. Be transparent in your prayers, folks. Be honest to God. He understands. He knows what you're putting on your mouth before even you say it. He knows what's on your heart. And the way we come to change in Christ is the more we open up to him and honestly bear our souls to the Almighty, he begins the great work in us by his Holy Spirit to mold us and to make us through this terrible circumstance you're going through. And make sure you don't put any limits on it. Say, God, whatever you want, thy will be done. We don't like that. When the ladies came out of the first service and she says, yeah, that will be done stuff, that is hard to do. To let God do whatever he wants in my life. Because I want it my way. You know, the old Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. That's what we like. But when we let go and give it to God, and we say, God, I trust you more than I feel. I trust you more than I think. I trust you more than my will wants to. But I trust you. To do what you will. But then James comes to us and speaks about sickness. And he says, is any one of you sick? Then he must call the elders of the church and they are to pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. James is speaking about people who were sick in their congregations. And he was concerned about them. And he gives us, and it's so interesting that we understand that the Westminster Confession puts it very well about understanding scripture, is that you understand scripture with scripture. And you read the Bible as to what it says about scripture, and that you want the true meaning that God had it inspired to be there on that page. And there are many different interpretations of this passage, especially when it comes to the anointing of oil, the prayer offered in faith, and taking the elders, the Catholic Church sees it as the anointing of the sick or extreme unction, giving last rites just before a person dies. And here the passage is saying, no, it's for the person who is sick and wants healing to call on the elders to come and heal them. And that's hard to do because sometimes it takes our ego to replace it and, and ask for a prayer, ask for the elders to actually come over our house and heal us, to, to pray for healing for us. Then there's also John Calvin. He believed that the healing was only for the apostolic age to affirm the apostles, who they were, and, and Jesus. And that's why the healings come. And him and Thomas Mayton thought of this. 
But there's, this is not James is what he's talking about. He's not talking about, he's talking about elders who are active in the church are called and they're told to go and pray over and anoint with oil. And then there's those who want to have the free experience of, of healing service. You know, I've, I've dealt with some people who've been hurt and burned, lost thousands of dollars because they believe in somebody who's going to send them a little vial of oil and send it to them and that they're going to get healed. And when they don't get healed, they're told to call back and get another, send another $1,500 because maybe it was a different oil. Ridiculous. But James here is speaking about the oil, his anointment. It reminds us of the blessing of God and that the elders are to be called. It's their responsibility for the spiritual and physical needs of the congregation. And they're there to help, to lift up, to strengthen those who are struggling. And the prayer of the elders are there. And it's not the prayer of the elders. It's not the ointment. That we, in fact, the ointment, there's some who interpret the oil as really medication. And that we use medication and prayer as a way of healing. And we see that in our world. There's no dichotomy. Why did the church start hospitals? And why did they, they minister to the poor and bring medicine to these uh, clinics that they take out in foreign mission fields? It's because we believe that God has provided those things. And we know that the shepherds used to take oil. And in, in, in Psalm 23, when we hear, he anoints our head with oil. In those days, it was used as antiseptic. And that the shepherds at the end of the day when the sheep were coming into the fold and they scraped themselves on a rock or got a thicket and they were bleeding, that shepherd would pull that scab open and anoint it with oil to prevent infection from happening. And they used oil. And this is what James is talking about, is that to use a medication and know that the blessing of God is on that as it's used in that person's life. I tragically saw a situation when I first was in seminary of a woman whose pastor told her that she was healed from her diabetes. And he, he put the hand on her. She didn't have to go to the doctor anymore. Tragically, two days later, she died in a diabetic coma because she didn't get it verified. And she was not healed. And she went into a coma and died. This is tragic. But this is how sometimes people can use the word falsely. And here James is saying to us, you have a God who we come to in prayer, who's sovereign. And we lay it before him. It's not the oil. It's not the prayer. It's not the, the, the elders. It's God doing the healing who we come to in faith and trust that he will do what is right and what needs to be done in this person's life. That he's omnipotent and can do the healing. And that he invites us to pray fervent prayers, totally leaning on him. And that the God who created good can bring healing in anybody, even using the medical arts. And that he knows what's best and what's best for his glory. We say that in Romans 8, 28. All things work together for the good for those who love the bad things and the good things. And it's a gift from God. And God gives that powerful healing. You see, even in the Bible, there are times people were not healed. Paul was not healed. Even though he petitioned God three times. Peter and John did some miraculous thing and so did Paul. But there were times too that Paul, for instance, left Eutychus because he was sick. 
He left, uh, <clears throat> he left Miletus in Trophus because he was sick. And he wasn't healed by the prayers. But they still prayed for him. Timothy had trouble with his stomach. He was, got sometimes anxious. Paul says to him, have a little wine for your stomach. See, this is the beauty of the gospel. And there's no dichotomy between medicine and prayer. They work together hand in hand. But then there's something else that works against us in prayer. And James brings it out. He says there's blockage. And if he has committed sins, continuously sinning, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of the righteous man can accomplish much. And James is saying one of the things that can prevent us from being healed, one of the things that can easily bring to us sickness is unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin can bring terrible things. The, the American version of the Bible translated faults, but that's not the word in Greek, it's homateria, which means sin. And sin can easily bring sickness to our hearts. Carl Menninger, the great Menninger Clinic for mentally ill people, he says the reason a lot of people are in that clinic and in that hospital because they can't forgive themselves. And what they need is God to confess to God and let him forgive them and to sense that. And they can be freed from the bondage of their mental illness. See, the Bible here is saying to us confession. And confession to one another. Have somebody hold us accountable to help us in, in dealing with a struggle that we may have. AA uses this constantly of having somebody sponsor you and help you through when those moments come. And to confess your sins and your desires. And to help you through them. And sin, what sin does, it isolates us, folks. It makes us want to carry this secret inside. When we confess it, it sets us free. Sin can destroy unity in a, a marriage or in a friendship. But when we confess our faults, it frees it up to become unity again. Sin can make us sick. And that's why we're called here to confess it. To pray for one another. To look in the mirror at ourselves and see ourselves for what we are. What happens when we ignore sin? We live in guilt. We live in isolation. We live in fear. Somebody's going to find out. Our joy disappears. Our anger increases. We begin to loathe ourselves sometimes. Friendships will end. And trust is even eroded in God. You see, the devil loves to use unconfessed sin to remind us and to call us back. He's the adversary, the Bible says. He likes to remind us of that unconfessed sin. Or that sin that we've committed that nobody else knows but us. A counselor once said, you're only as sick as your secrets. And that's true. If we leave them to ourselves, but to confess them before God. Jesus ran into a woman at the well. Remember that? 
It's kind of like everybody else in the world when they're caught, or you see somebody, or you hear about somebody of certain things that they've been accused of. And we hear it on TV, and they're covering it up. They're trying to keep the lights out so that it's not exposed. They bury the evidence. They destroy the tapes. They take away the text. They make up an alibi. They run from the crime scene. Jesus comes to this woman, and he's offering her the living water that will bring her life. And here she is covering up. He asked about her husband, and she says, I have no husband. And she was right, because you've been married five times, and the guy she was living with was not her husband. And Jesus goes right to her and says, you're right. And he tells her all that she's been doing and what she's about. And then gives her the chance to open up and let it out. And then he says, go and see no more. You see, what a beautiful thing our Lord does. He'll forgive it. He'll lift it so that we are not hurt. Finally, Pope James then says, don't let that block your life from the joy of Christ. And then have prayer that's effectual. The effective prayer of the righteous man can be accomplished. And what he's talking about is positional righteousness. Whenever you give your life to Jesus Christ, God justifies you before the throne. And he declares you righteous. Now, we don't walk around as righteous people doing righteous things because we're still sinners. But when you come to know Jesus Christ and he's forgiving your sins, he declares you already righteous. And we finally come to experience that righteousness fully when he, we die and we go to heaven to be with him. That's when we fully embrace the righteousness. But at that very moment when you give your life to Christ, you are declared like a judge would declare you not guilty and that's what he does and he says for the righteous person the prayer of the righteous person that's us and as we pray earnestly like Elijah did he said Elijah was a man of nature just like ours he was just like us in fact when you read the description in first kings about Elijah he was a guy from nowhere. In fact, today, they're not even sure where his home was. Someplace, they call it, he was a Tishbite that was in Gilead, and they don't know where that is. He was from a saltwater flat in nowhere. And yet God fed him by raisins. He defeated the Baal worshipers and the prophets of Baal. And, and, and at this wonderful mark off that God gave him at Mount Carmel, he defeated them. He defeated the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And when he died, he went into heaven in a chariot. But the Bible here says to us, a man just like us. You see, God chose him not because he was great or some spiritual giant, but he was just like us. And God can use each one of us especially as prayer warriors. And he showed Ahab 
by bringing three and a half years of desert dry, no water drought to convince him how great God is. And then he goes around and Elijah with his Philistine wife, Jezebel, who wanted to kill Elijah and yet stood the ground in fear. He hid himself and God still used him. And after the three and a half years of drought came, he went and saw Ahab and said, you better get your boots on because it's going to get really wet and you may want even a canoe because the rain is going to come. And sure enough, he prayed on Mount Carmel. Seven times he went to the Lord, petitioning the Lord and said, go back. Pray one more time. We see this endurance that he has in sticking with what God had given to him. And he continued to pray repeatedly. And then the seventh time came. And a little cloud in the form of a fish shows up. And sure enough, the heavens break open with such a torrent of rain. You see, sometimes God does that with us. He calls us to pray maybe seven times. Maybe 2,700 times. Maybe 4,000 times. But you know, it's easy to give up. And Elijah didn't. He didn't give up on what God had told him and he trusted him. And Elijah had faith. It's interesting, you know, we saw that 85% of people don't believe that God's going to answer their prayer. You see, it's easy to doubt. And I understand that sometimes we pray because we live in a real world and we see people die and we see all kinds of things happen and we see our prayers not always answered. We don't like that. Especially when it's God's will and it's his will that's being done. We want our will. And so it's easy to doubt. Moses doubted God. Elijah doubted God. Abraham doubted God. Even the disciples doubted Jesus. You see, as a Christian, sometimes in seasons of our life, it's easy to doubt. It's easy to get so discouraged because it's gone on for so long that we never think that God is going to answer our prayer and that he's going to do it. And so it's easy to doubt. But our prayer needs to be what we find in Mark chapter 9. When a man came with his child to be healed. And Jesus said and asked that the man believe that his child was going to be healed. And the father said what was basically true of sometimes all of us. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. See, sometimes it's hard for us to trust that. But God respects that kind of honesty. And our challenge here that James has given to us is not just praying mundanely through the list of things and bless this one and that. And that is important. That maintenance is needed. But it's those prayers that we ask that are javelin prayers. Prayers that go right through the crisis 
and deal with our, our, our fears and our doubts and, and our lack of faith and give us the strength that we need to carry on so that we can say and really mean the words that Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. We want what you want, Jesus. We want your will. As Jesus in the garden said, not my will, but thy will. Because you see, when we work as men, we work. But when we pray, God works. And that's what we want. We step into eternity and God shows us and gives us what we need. That we see his vision and understand what he wants. And that we realize that this is the greatest privilege we can have. And so underutilized is prayer. And that we understand that it's our high and holy privilege to pray. And sometimes you'll find that the most meaningful prayer you'll ever pray. That theologian Halsby brought out in his book, a beautiful book on prayer. He said, sometimes the most meaningful prayer we ever pray is one word, help. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Help me. Joplin, Missouri, when the E5 went through. There was a nurse in St. John's Hospital, seventh floor. She was ministering to a patient and that tornado hit the side of that hospital and she was pinned up against the wall by the bed. And all she could say is, God save us, God save us. She was able to push the bed away. And the patient laying there kept on saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. That theologian was right. He said, helplessness united with the faith produces prayer. And for without faith, there can be no prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for providing us with prayer. And we confess sometimes we've underutilized it. You gave us this wonderful gift that we can do. Now we can even storm the gates of heaven. And the Bible says you will listen to us. That you'll empower us. You'll strengthen us. You'll give us what we need. But Lord, forgive our unbelief. Times when we struggle and doubt your graciousness to us. Lord, we want to say we believe, but help our unbelief. Thank you, Jesus, for being here. Thank you for this gift. In your name we pray. Amen. Please rise together as we receive our benediction and sing our closing song. And I leave you with the words of Joshua. As he spoke to the people of Israel as they were going into the promised land, he said, be strong and be courageous and do not be afraid for the Lord God goes with you.